living in today's culture. Even the song we just sung may have offended many people who would come here saying, Christ alone? Really, Christ alone? Is that it? What about all the other gods of the world? What about them? Why are you you saying just about Christ alone? It's kind of offensive. In the media, so-called Christians, they keep being portrayed... um, The ones that are falling uh, in their faith, you know, we hear about pastors who are living duplicitous lives. It becomes hard to become a Christian in public culture. In our day-to-day lives, we're told that making, making Jesus primary and exclusive is offensive to other people. And uh, like Jesus, in some ways, he doesn't help us out too much by the things that he says some of the times. He says things that are, that people see as intolerant. He says things like we heard about a couple weeks ago, how marriage is reserved between a male and a female. And then that sex should only happen within a legitimate biblical marriage. Having these beliefs as a Christian, it's not easy, I think, in today's culture. This morning, from the passage we already had read for us, that we read along with, we're going to see how the disciples found that being faithful to the teachings of Jesus put them right in the crosshairs of the religious establishment of their day. But this didn't cause them to shrink away from their faith in God. This didn't cause them to be quiet. In fact, it emboldened them all the more. And so my hope that this morning as we go through this passage, you will all be encouraged in your faith, and you'll also be given resolve to live as faithful Christians in today's cult day and age, in our culture that we find ourselves in. So if you have your Bibles, turn uh, to uh, Acts chapter 4. If, you're, uh, if you want to grab a Bible that's in the chair in front of you, it's on page 772. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4 and the passage that was just read for us. The background, you know, we've been in this series called the Disciple-Making Experience, and so far we've been through chapters 1 through 3. You remember from chapter 1, Jesus gave us the commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He says to uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and emboldens the church, gives them life. And Peter preaches the first Christian sermon and 3,000 come to faith in Christ on that day. We see that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer as the Christian community was now newly formed at the end of Acts 2. And then in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they meet a man and they heal him, this man who was lame from birth. He's healed and, and, and there for everyone to see. He's basically doing jumping jacks in the temple courts. He's so excited about how the Lord has healed him through Peter and John. And so Peter and John see him doing jumping jacks, and they're like, well, this is as good a time as any to preach another sermon. And so they share the gospel even more. And this is where we find ourselves as we come to the beginning of Acts chapter 4. We'll see that the coming of the Holy Spirit, it leads to explosive power for the church, both shown in the conversion of 3,000 people, but also in the healing. And now this is starting to rattle the cages of some of the religious establishment of the day. You know, when the Christians, when they were just hiding in the upper room, there was no issue. The religious authorities, they were fine with the disciples still believing in Jesus, so long as they, they kept to themselves, stayed in the upper room. But now, they've gone public. They're making a difference. People's lives are being transformed, and this leads the religious establishment to start persecuting the disciples. 
So let's look at the first few verses of Acts chapter 4. So Peter is preaching this sermon to a decent-sized crowd, and this greatly annoys some authorities. It says here it's the priests and the captain of the temple guard that are annoyed, and the Sadducees. You know, the priests, they're annoyed based on religious grounds. They're expecting a Messiah still, but not one who would come for all the people, one that would just come for faithful Jews. The captain of the temple guard, he's kind of like the mall cop. He's just wanting to keep things, you know, under wraps, <laughs> keeping them, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, there's something going on here, so they're kind of just like checking out what's going on here. Why is there so much kerfuffle going on? You know, I like to keep things nice and calm. So that's what the temple guard's all about. And then the Sadducees, they're upset, not for religious reasons, but, but for political ones. The Sadducees, you know, you'll recognize them even from the Gospels. They weren't persecuting Jesus in the early days. But once Jesus starts to start to gain some notoriety, that's when they start to persecute Jesus. It's because they start to see their place and authority and uh, in the hierarchy of the religious establishment. It's being under threat. And that's when they start to persecute Jesus. And so when Jesus was crucified, the Sadducees, Sadducees they thought, you know what? It's cool now. You know, there's going to be no, no issues. And for a little while, it had been that way. But now, the disciples are starting to make, uh, uh, make some noise. They're starting to heal people in Jesus' name. And they're greatly annoyed by this. So as Acts chapter 4 begins, we see there's different types of people who are upset at the disciples for different reasons. They're experiencing persecution. This is the first Christian persecution in Acts chapter 4. But we shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? We shouldn't be surprised by persecution coming to followers of Christ. For Jesus himself, he said that we should expect persecution. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I've chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus says if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, and you're going to follow me, they're going to persecute you too. And the more faithful you are, to the teachings and the life of Jesus, the more that persecution is likely to come. So don't be surprised when you're persecuted for your faith. Jesus said it's gonna happen. Again, it's, it's when the disciples are quiet and when we're quiet about our faith, no one's got an issue with it. If you don't want issues being a Christian, just keep quiet about it. Don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. But if you're going to follow Jesus faithfully in the way that Jesus lived his life and in the way that the disciples demonstrated what it looks like to faithfully follow Christ, you're going to face persecution. Persecution comes to Christians all over the world and all over the world, many Christians see it much worse than we do here in Hamilton. There's a slide that I'll show you here. This is from a ministry called Open Doors. And in this calendar year, of 2022 alone says that there's over 360 million Christians 
that are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. Almost 6,000 Christians have been killed for their faith this year alone. This is what's known. Over 5,100 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked. And close to 5,000 believers have been detained without trial. They've been arrested. They've been sentenced or imprisoned. You know, as a follower of Christ, we're going to experience persecution in many ways, but probably, thank goodness for us right now in Canada, it won't look like that. But Christians all over the world, today, perhaps even there's church buildings around the world that are being attacked as they worship Christ. And so as Christians, we need to be ready for this. Are you ready for the persecution that could come your way? You know, we sing words often on Sunday morning. We sing things like, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus told us this is coming, and the disciples in Acts 4, they were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And millions of our brothers and sisters around the world are imprisoned and experiencing persecution this very moment. And so we need to be ready for it too as well in whatever form it comes to us as Canadians living today. And so at the end of verse three, we see the disciples, they find themselves overnight imprisoned and in custody uh, because it was too late for a trial. But let's see what happened in the next morning in verses five to seven. He says, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or name did you do this? So how, how was this man healed? By what name did you do this in? You know, in verses five to seven, we get this list of people who were there to oversee the trial. You might think that's not a very important detail to add in. It's maybe not interesting. We don't know these names. What difference does it make? But this is basically the Jewish ruling council. You may have heard of this council called the Sanhedrin. This is the same council that oversaw Jesus' trial. So the council that Peter and John are looking up at are the same ones that sentenced Jesus to death. Put yourself in Peter and John's shoes right now then. What are they thinking? They've just been preaching in the temple courts, doing the same type of things that Jesus was doing. Many people are being converted to Christianity. Now they've also healed a man. Do you think they're looking up saying, is this it for us? (laughs) You know, I've seen this trial before and it doesn't end too well for the one that's being put on trial. What would be going through your mind you're brought before this trial that months ago sentenced someone to death for doing the exact same things, in fact, the one that you follow? I couldn't even imagine the knots that would be in my stomach as I was wondering, is this actually my time? Is today my last day here on earth? I would be pretty scared. But Peter, he doesn't seem to be too scared, does he, as we go on? In verse eight, says, then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, says rulers and people of, and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all of the people of Israel that by this name, the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can you believe the audacity of Peter? <laughs> he doubles down on his argument. He's like, if I'm going down, I'm going down a blaze of glory. I'm saying it all. <laughs> I'm leaving it all out there. I'm not going to try to go sheepish now that I'm in front of the, the courts no, this is where I'm going to, people are looking. They're seeing, is, has what you've been preaching the whole time, now that you're on trial and you could actually die for it, is it still true, Peter? And he says, yes, it is. Salvation's found in no one else. Where else am I going to go? It's in Jesus are the words of eternal life. Verse 8, it makes clear too, where does Peter's confidence come from? Look at verse 8. It says he's filled with the Spirit. We don't have this audacity and courageousness in and of ourselves. But it says Peter was filled by the Spirit. This is a phrase that perhaps we hear sometimes. And uh, it's common to us if we've grown up in the church. Yeah, being filled with the Spirit. Um, but I think it's lost a lot of its meaning to us. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are filled with God living within you. Where does the audacity to speak back to the ruling council come from? It comes from God living within you, giving, him, giving you his power, his authority. If we think we don't have it within us to stand before a, a ruling council, we're right. But only with God working in us do we have the audacity to speak truth to those that don't believe. You know, we, there, there's a theological distinction between being indwelt by the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. At conversion, once you've believed and trusted in Christ. So I'm assuming for the majority of us here this morning, you are indwelt with the Spirit. When you become a Christian, immediately, the Spirit lives within you. It's pretty mind-blowing when you think about it. God's Spirit, the Spirit of God that, that just spoke and everything came into existence, that Spirit lives within you. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there's a difference between being indwelt with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. We are told we are indwelt by the Spirit, but we're also told as Christians to be filled with the Spirit. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul, he's writing about divisions in the church, and he makes an argument that we shouldn't be divided because we're all God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within us all. There's the assumption that we shouldn't be fighting 
different Christians because God's the same spirit that lives in you lives in your brother who you're potentially fighting with. We're indwelt with the spirit. But the same Paul, writing in the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, says in, in Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk on wine, which for that is debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirit. So there's a way in which we could be indwelt by God's spirit, but not filled with his spirit. God's spirit can be inside of us, but it's possible that we're not allowing him to lead us and to guide us and empower us and strengthen us. In that case, we're Christians, but we're living disobedient to the command to be filled and led by the spirit. Much like we're, we're called to pray without ceasing, meaning that our, mar- our lives should be marked by regular prayer, we're to be regularly be asking God to fill us with his spirit, to lead us, to guide us. So coming back to the story in Acts 4, we see that Peter was able to be bold and to speak truth to the relig- religious leaders when he was on trial, not, not because not only was he indwelt with the spirit, but because he was being filled with the spirit, allowing the spirit to work in and through him. And so being filled with the Spirit, what does that lead Peter to say as we go on? Well, it says he, he preached the power of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ. This is what the Spirit led him to, to preach, the, 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 the power of Christ and the exclusivity of Christ. In Acts 4, 9 to 10, it says, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed being done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel, that it's the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing well before you. This man is healed because of the name of Jesus. Peter wants to make sure there's no ambiguity about it. It's not the powerful name of Peter and John. It's the powerful name of Jesus and Jesus alone that this man was healed. This is the same Jesus, he goes on to remind them, the same Jesus you guys, you this very council, you crucified him to his name that this power is in. Remember the Jesus you rejected? Well, Jesus is now the cornerstone of a new temple that's being built. God is making a new building and Jesus is the very cornerstone. And then he goes on to say, which is probably the most memorable verse in this whole chapter, Verse 12, and there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you see what Peter's saying here? There's salvation found nowhere else. You're looking around for salvation. You're going to miss it unless you look at Christ. It's in Christ alone that we're going to find our salvation. There's no other name. It doesn't matter how good you are all the good deeds you've done, your church, your church attendance record could be flawless, but if you still don't have Christ as the one pleading before God the Father on your behalf, you're just as lost as anyone else. And this isn't just the teaching of Peter. Jesus himself said this about himself. You know, sometimes culture likes to put things on Peter and Paul and say, you know, they were the the, the, the mean ones. Let's just listen to the teachings of Jesus. It was Jesus himself who said in John 14, 6, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one is able to come to God the Father except through Jesus. He said it as well. And Peter knows this, and so that's why he's, he's, just, being, he's just being a true disciple of Jesus, saying that there's no other way that you could be saved except for through Jesus. Now, this is one of the uncomfortable teachings of the Christian faith, that we can't just say, you know, it's good for us to follow Jesus, but it's just as good for you to gather and worship some other God. And that works for you, that's great, that's awesome. We can't say that if we're, we're legitimately following Jesus because Jesus didn't say that. This is one of the difficult teachings of Jesus. It means that if we want to faithfully follow Jesus as his disciple, we need to believe and teach that Jesus is the only way to God. There's only one way to heaven. It's through Jesus. This type of teaching doesn't go over well in our pluralistic culture today, though, does it? The culture wants Christians just to keep this one on the down low. People will say, you just can't talk like that anymore, right? You can't say that, Christians. It's not cool. You can believe in Jesus, that's great. Just don't say he's the only one. Just don't say he's superior to, you know, Buddha and Muhammad and Moses and Gandhi. Just say, you know, you follow him and other people follow them and that's cool. Just do that and we'll all live happily together. This is where we have to say, well, what, what Jesus do you want me to believe in? The one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that the Jesus I'm allowed to believe in? Am I allowed to believe in that Jesus? That's the only Jesus we have in history. Any other Jesus you've heard about, it's a figment of someone's imagination. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It may sound arrogant, but the fact is Jesus himself said it. No other religious leader claimed that level of authority. Jesus set himself apart from any other religious ruler, pointing everything to himself. Therefore, there's, there's just no way to believe in Jesus the same way that someone else believes in their God. Now maybe Jesus was right, maybe he was wrong, but he's not the same as every other religious ruler. Our Canadian culture wants Christians to say that all religions are equally true. And they want Christians to believe that all religions are equally true because that's what they believe. Again, our culture is fine when we keep our Christianity private. It's fine when we find it personally helpful. But according to our culture, there can't just be one way to follow God or to think about God. That's because they think all religions can be equally helpful and valid. And we need to be inclusive about everyone's beliefs. And this is likely the view that most of the people of Hamilton today would hold. Most of the people you work with, most of the people that are, live on your street, kind of believe this way. But logically, how could all religions be equally true? 
they say very contradictory things. Some religions believe that there's only one God. Some religions believe that there's millions of gods. Some say that there's no God. Christianity says there's one God revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. To say that all religions are equally true, even though they're contradictory, it's just illogical. To criticize Christianity for saying that Jesus is true while all other religions are false, while also saying that Christians should believe that all religions are the same, it's hypocritical. If we are told that we should believe that all religious perspectives are equally true, are they being inclusive of what we believe? No. What they're saying is that we have a perspective on religion and God, and everybody should believe that same perspective on religion and God. You shouldn't believe what you believe about God. You should believe what we believe about God. So all of a sudden, we're not the only ones that are exclusivistic. Everybody is. And when, Christian, when culture speaks to Christians like this, what are they doing? They are evangelizing us. They are trying to convert us for holding that Jesus is who he, just for believing that Jesus is who he says he was. And what are they guilty of? The exact same things that they say that Christians are guilty of. The only difference is that as a Christian, I fully admit that I have a narrow view of God and who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. The secular view of inclusivity that all religious views are the same is illogical and hypocritical. Tim Keller says, if it's narrow and wrong to say there's one true religion, then it would also have to be narrow and wrong to say there's only one true way to think about religion. So Acts 4, it doesn't allow us to tippy-toe around this. Christianity makes exclusive statements. But this is not something that we should get sheepish around. We need to be kind, but we can't be silent. Every system of thinking makes exclusive statements, but not everyone will admit it. If we truly believe in Jesus, we believe that he's truly the son of God, we believe that salvation is found in him alone and that that is good news. So as we continue on in this passage, we'll see, now how does the, the Sanhedrin re- respond to this, <laughs> the, these remarks from Peter? The disciples are compelled to preach Christ. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astounded and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These religious leaders, they realized that these aren't trained theologians, but there's something different about them. They don't just believe something academically. They haven't just gone to school. Something's penetrated their heart. They have been with Jesus. It confounds them that these are just ordinary guys speaking so boldly about scripture. The only explanation they can possibly have is that these guys, they've actually been with Jesus. Verses 14 to 18, it says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they confirmed with one another saying, 
What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. These, the religious leaders, they just don't know what to do with these guys. <laughs> they don't know what to do. They're confounded. They're just ordinary guys. But like all these people are following them now. People are being healed. What, what's going on? All they, they could do is try to tell them to stop doing what they're doing. One thing I note about this passage that is applicable to each one of us today is the fact that the religious leaders, they couldn't deny the experience of what happened. One of the most powerful tools each one of you has is your story of how Jesus has changed you. You know, people can debate all sorts of things about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, but what, what has Jesus actually done in your life to bring you from death to life? Or what has, what has Jesus done in your life recently that has kept you persevering in your walk with God? These are stories that need to be shared. These are stories that you shouldn't keep to yourselves. You know, one of the, some of the most powerful Sundays that we have gathered together are not when a, a formally trained pastor comes up and, and shares something from the Bible. It's with, when an ordinary Christian stands up, gets into the tank here, and tells them what Jesus has done in their life. You can debate what I say about the Bible or whatever, but you can't debate what's happened to this person who's saying, Jesus changed me. Those stories are powerful. And each one of you has a story of how Jesus has changed your life. You may not think it's remarkable, but to the world around you, hearing about how someone who lived 2,000 years ago shapes how you live your life, it confounds them in the same way that it confounded the religious leaders here with Peter and John. The most powerful type of apologetics today is narrative apologetics. It's a type where you just tell a story and people feel that and relate to that. They may not have gone through the exact thing you have gone through, but they can relate on a human level and it causes them to want something different. The authorities, they just want Peter and John to keep quiet. The world just wants us to keep quiet. We have to decide how we're going to respond. Peter and John, <laughs> when they were told to keep quiet, this is what they said, verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judged. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people, for they were praising God for what happened. The disciples, they just, they can't stop. 
They can't stop telling others about what they have seen Jesus do. They had seen with their own eyes. They had touched the resurrected Jesus with their own hands. They were just acting in obedience to what he said. They're not just trying to do their own thing. They're just following what their Lord and Savior had called them to do. Jesus had given them the great commission. He said, go and now make disciples of all the nations. In order to go and make disciples of all nations, they're compelled to share the good news of Jesus. If, there's, if we truly believe, which I hope we do, that there's salvation in only one name, then to keep that to ourselves, it's unloving. It's unneighborly. If we want to love our neighbor, we need, to, we need to point them to the place where salvation is found alone. We share the message of the gospel. We share the message that although we were made by God to love him, we rebelled against him. Sometimes this is demonstrated in an active rebellion where we're just constantly, consciously going against the teachings of God. We know what we're doing. Sometimes it's just passive indifference. I'm just disinterested in that kind of religious stuff. Both active rebellion, passive indifference, they're both evidence of what the Bible calls sin. But the good news for us this morning God doesn't leave us in our active rebellion or our passive indifference, but he pursues us. God's word teaches that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And so I call out to you this morning, each one of you here, would you come to Jesus? Would you come to the one in which salvation is alone found in? We all know on our own that we can't do it. We all feel this sense of angst that we don't have it in and of ourselves. That if we were to truly stand before a righteous and holy God, we, we would have nothing to say. We might try to make some things up or go to this or that good thing you've done, but, but ultimately you, you wouldn't have enough standing before a holy God. But this is the good news of the gospel. That you don't have it within you, but that Jesus, he has it within himself. And that salvation is found in him alone. And he, just, he doesn't just want you to know that. He wants you to experience him and, and to come to him and to find that good news and find that love in him. He knocks on the door of your heart. He says, I long to come in. Open the door. Come in. Invite me in. And I'll have a relationship with you. It says, I'll, Jesus says, I will eat with you and you will eat with me. The God of this universe in which there's salvation found in him alone, he wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to receive forgiveness of sins through him. This is the message that Peter and John were willing to give their lives for and to share it with all who would hear. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So if you've never invited Christ into your life, I would invite you to do that, even today. You can talk with me after the service. I would love to do that. 
You can call into the office, set up an appointment. I'd love to meet with you to share more. But for the rest of us here, let us be people who are not only indwelt by God's spirit, but filled with his spirit, ready to share the good news of Jesus at every opportunity we have. Being a disciple of Jesus means we follow him, we are changed by him, and we are also committed to the mission of Jesus. So let's be ready to follow the lead of Peter and John and be ready to proclaim salvation in Christ alone in the face of persecution to those that God has put, us, put around us. Our world is dreadfully confused by religious inclusivism, and they desperately need to know the good news that salvation is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do want to exalt you. We want to magnify your name, the name that is above all other names. Jesus, we thank you that you came and you were, you were very specific to us, saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one's going to get to the Father apart from me. And so, Jesus, I pray that for each person here, you'd be at work in their lives, drawing them to yourselves. Again, for those that already know you personally, God, I just pray that this morning's text would cause them to want to know you more and also to help those around them know you more. And God, if there's any here this morning, I just pray that by your spirit, just work in their hearts. Draw them to yourself. May they see clearly the beauty of Christ who alone is worthy of praise and who alone is the one who makes us righteous before you. We praise your name this morning, Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen. As we close, just a reminder, if you're a young adult, you're certainly welcome to come to the lunch that will happen after the next service, so you can stick around for the next one, or you can come back a little bit later. Also keep in mind that two Sundays from now, or ne ne not this Sunday, but next Sunday actually, not two, but just one week away, we have our quarterly business meeting. And this will be a very important meeting at the end of the year. We have a new budget that'll be coming forward. We'll be bringing you some important reports. And as you know, in light of Lee and Cheryl's uh, announcement to us last Sunday morning, we're in a stage of major transition. So we want to update you and inform, inform you. This is an important meeting for our members to be at. So we trust you'll be with us next Sunday night. And then, of course, tonight at 6, a very, is it two weeks? You're right, it's two weeks. My apology. What's next Sunday night then? Nothing. All I know is I'm preaching next Sunday morning, so. Um, oh, it's the beginning of Advent next Sunday. That's right. November 27. Tonight, an important service. Uh, Pastor Jamie will be ordained. He met before an ordination council, and they grilled him, and he passed with flying colors. And so there will be people from other churches coming to join us tonight. Um, Sundar Krishnan will be with us. He was Jamie's pastor many years back. He's an outstanding preacher of God's word. So please come and join us. This will be a wonderful celebration time followed by refreshments afterwards. Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit that the one who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so may God the Holy Spirit cause that river to flow out of you as you are filled with the Spirit and as the gospel goes out from you as you share your story with others so that it will bring life to those you speak to. In Jesus' name, amen.